Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week, our podcast features an episode of Sleep No More called Three O'Clock. It first aired on December 5th, 1956. In just a moment, Sleep No More, but first. Hello? Oh, hello, Martha. No, no, just finishing my housework and enjoying NBC Bandstand on the radio. Oh, it's just fabulous. This week they have Freddie Martin and his orchestra, Burt Parks, of course, and Snooky Lanson as the singing star, and the Glenn Miller Orchestra under the direction of Ray McKinley. But why am I telling you about it? Tune it in yourself. NBC Bandstand, live weekday mornings on NBC Radio. And now stay tuned for Sleep No More on NBC. This is Nelson Olmsted. Sleep no more. Sleep no more. Turn down the lights. Sink back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, it may be, you will sleep no more. Good evening. This is Ben Grauer introducing tonight's tale of terror, told by Nelson Armstead on the National Broadcasting Company's presentation of Sleep no more. The story of terror can be as simple as a sheeted ghost rattling chains. It can be a complex and hidden world of horror, lurking in such unholy dimensions as only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Or it can be those terrible, fathomless shadows which lie buried deep in the primitive mind of civilized man. And for this evening... Well, Nelson Armstead, tell us about this evening's story. Well, Ben, it's called Three O'Clock, and it's a masterly chiller by William Irish. When a man is jealous, and when that same man has long had the urge to kill, well, well, then you have Three O'Clock by William Irish, is that it? That's it, Ben. So, Nelson Armstead, tell us about this man. signed her own death warrant. He kept telling himself over and over that he wasn't to blame. She'd brought it on herself. He had never seen the man, but he knew there was one. He had known for six weeks now. One day he came home, and there was a cigar butt in an ashtray, still moist at one end, still warm at the other. His wife was too often flustered when he came home, hardly seemed to know what she was doing or saying at all. He pretended not to see any of these things. He was that type of man, Stapp was. He didn't bring his hates or grudges out into the open where they had a chance to heal. He nursed them in the darkness of his mind. That's a dangerous kind of man. If he'd been honest with himself, he would have had to admit that this mysterious afternoon caller was just the excuse he gave himself, that he daydreamed of getting rid of his wife long before there was any reason to. 
that there had been something in him for years past now urging, kill, kill, kill. Maybe ever since that time he'd been treated at the hospital for a concussion. He didn't have any of the usual excuses. She had no money of her own. He hadn't insured her. He stood to gain nothing by getting rid of her. She didn't nag and quarrel with him. She was a docile, tractable sort of wife. But this thing in his brain kept whispering, kill, kill, kill. So every afternoon, for six weeks now, when he came home from his shop, he had brought little things with him, very little things that were so harmless, so inoffensive in themselves that no one, even if had they seen them, could have guessed. Fine little strands of copper wire such as he sometimes used in his watch repairing. And each time, a very little package containing a substance that, well, an explosives expert might have recognized, but no one else. Loose like that, it couldn't hurt you. But wadded tightly into cells in what had formerly been a soapbox down in the basement, compressed to within an inch of its life the way he had it, the whole accumulated 36 days' worth of it, that would be a different story. They'd never know. There wouldn't be enough left of the flimsy house for them to go by. Sewer gas explosion, they'd think. Or a pocket of natural gas in the ground somewhere around under them. He'd be in his shop, tinkering with his watch parts, and the phone would ring. Mr. Stapp! Mr. Stapp! Your house has just been demolished by a blast! <laughs> the last little package had been brought in two days ago. The box had all it could hold now, twice as much as was necessary to blow up the house. The box was set, the wires were in place, the batteries that would give off the necessary spark were attached. All that was necessary now was to hook up the clock, and then today was the day. At 12.30 sharp, he wrapped up the alarm clock he'd been working on, tucked it under his arm, and left the shop. He took the bus, got off at his usual stop, walked three interminable suburban blocks to his house, and let himself in. She wasn't home, of course, as he knew. She was out marketing, as usual. He went directly to the door leading to the basement. He passed through it, closed it behind him, and went down the bare wooden steps to the basement floor. She hadn't even known that he'd come down here each night for a few minutes while she was in the kitchen doing the dishes. By the time she got through, he was upstairs again behind his newspaper. It didn't take long to add the contents of each successive little package to what was already in the box. The wiring had taken more time, but he'd gotten that done one night when she'd gone out to the movies, or so she'd said. The little box, that was no longer merely a box now, but an infernal machine, was standing over against the wall to one side of the oil burner. He was proud of it, prouder than of any fine watch he'd ever repaired or reconstructed. He unwrapped the clock and spread out the few necessary small implements he'd brought with him from the shop. Two fine copper wires were sticking stiffly out of a small hole he'd bored in the box, in readiness, like the antenna of some kind of insect. Through them, death would go in. He wound the clock up first, for he couldn't safely do that once it was connected. He wound it up to within an inch of its life. He set the alarm for three. But there was a difference now. Instead of just setting off a harmless bell when the hour hand reached three and the minute hand reached twelve, the wires attached to it leading to the batteries, would set off a spark. A single, tiny, evanescent spark. That was all. He wondered why more people didn't do things like this. They didn't know what they were missing. Probably not clever enough to be able to make the things themselves. That was why. He set the clock itself by his own pocket watch. 1.15. 
Then he carefully guided the antenna like wires leading from the box through a hole previously bored in the back of the clock and fastened them to the necessary parts of the mechanism. It was highly dangerous, but his hands didn't play him false. And when he'd done with it, it stood there on the floor as if placed there at random up against an innocent-looking copper-lidded soapbox ticking away. Ten minutes had gone by since he'd come down here. One hour and 40 minutes were still to go by. Death was on the wing. He smiled a little and went on up the stairs, not furtively or fearfully, but like a man does in his own house, with an unhurried air of ownership, head up, shoulders back, tread firm. As he opened the basement door and stepped out into the ground floor hall, someone jumped on him, caught him brutally by the throat with one hand, flung him back against the wall and pinned him there. And then the man struck out at him, hit him a stunning blow on the side of the head with his free hand. Stapp's senses dulled into a whirling flux for a minute. And before they had cleared, a second man had leaped down from up the stairs from one of the rooms above, and he said, Hurry up! Get something to tie him up with, and let's get out of here! Oh, good Lord, don't tie... Stapp tried to say, clawing at his own throat to free it. He wasn't fighting the man off. He was only trying to tear that throttling impediment off long enough to get out what he had to tell him. But his assailant couldn't tell the difference. He struck him savagely a second time and a third time, and Stapp went limp there against the wall without altogether losing consciousness. The second one had come back already with a rope that looked like Fran's clothesline. Stapp was dimly aware of this rope going around and around him, crisscross in and out, legs and body and arms. Don't, he panted. And his mouth was suddenly nearly torn in two as a large handkerchief or rag was thrust in, effectively silencing all further sound. Then they whipped something around outside of that to keep it in and fastened it behind his head. And one of the men asked, Where will we put him? Well, leave him where he is. No, I did my last stretch just in account of leaving the guy in the open. Let's shove him back down where he was. Well, this brought on a new spasm, almost epileptic in its violence. He squirmed and writhed and shook his head back and forth. They had picked him up between them now, head and feet, kicked the basement door open, and were carrying him down the steps to the bottom. They still couldn't be made to understand that he wasn't resisting, that he wouldn't call the police, that he wouldn't lift a finger to have them apprehended if they'd only let him out of here with them. They deposited him on the floor by the pipe in the corner and lashed him in a sitting position there with an added length of rope that had been coiled in the basement. As the men left, one of them turned back and said, Now take it easy, bud. Relax. I used to be a sailor. You never get out of them knots. Stapp swiveled his skull desperately, threw his eyes at the clock one last time, and then... With the horrible slowness of a nightmare, the man turned and went out through the doorway. The basement door ebbed back into its socket with a minor click that to him was like the crack of doom. In the silence now, Above the surge of his own tidal breathing that came and went like surf upon a shoreline was the counterpoint of the clock. With the men went his only link with the outside world. They were the only two people in the whole city who knew where he was at this moment. No one else, not a living soul, knew where to find him. Now what would happen to him if he wasn't found and gotten out of here by three o'clock? It was 25 to two now, and the clock was ticking so rhythmically, so remorselessly, so fast. Then, 
At four to two, a door opened above without warning. Oh, blessed sound. Oh, lovely sound. The front door this time, and high-heeled shoes clacked over his head like castanets. Fran, he shouted. Fran, he yelled. Fran, he screamed. But all that got past the gag was a low whimper that didn't even reach across the basement. His face was wet and dark with the effort it cost him, and a cord stood out at each side of his palpitating neck like a splint. The tap, tap, tap went into the kitchen, stopped a minute. She was putting down her parcels and came back again. If only there was something he could kick at with a center-locked feet, make a clatter with. He tried hoisting his lashed legs clear of the floor and pounding them down again with all his might. Maybe the sound of the impact would carry up to her. All he got was a soft cushion sound with twice the pain of striking a stone surface with your bare palm. An electrical discharge of pain shot up the back of his legs, coursed up his spine, and exploded at the back of his head like a brilliant rocket. Meanwhile, her steps had halted about where the hall closet was, and then she went on toward the stairs that led to the upper floor, faded out upon them, going up. She was out of earshot now, temporarily, but she was in the house with him at least... That awful aloneness was gone. He felt such gratitude for her nearness. He felt such love and need for her. He wondered how he could ever have thought of doing away with her only one short hour ago. He saw now that he must have been insane to contemplate such a thing. Five after. She'd been back nine minutes now. And then it was ten at first slowly and then faster and faster, terror, which had momentarily been quelled by her return, began to fasten upon him again. Why did she stay up there on the second floor like that? Why didn't she come down here to the basement and look for something? Well, she might intend to stay up there all afternoon. Eleven past two. Forty-nine minutes left. No, not just minutes left. It wasn't fair. Fran, he shrieked. Fran, come down here. Can't you hear me? The gag absorbed his shrieks like a sponge. The phone trilled out suddenly in the lower hallway, midway between him and her. He'd never heard such a beautiful sound before. A tear stood out in each eye. Well, that must be the man now. That would bring her down. And then he heard her quick step descending the stairs to answer it. He could hear every word she said down there where he was from all these cheap matchwood houses. Hello? Oh, yes, Dave, I, I just got in now. And then? Oh, Dave, I'm all upset. I had $17 upstairs in my bureau drawer, and it's gone, and the wristwatch that Paul gave me is gone, too. It looks to me as if someone broke in here while I was out and robbed us. Stapp almost writhed with delight. She knew they'd been robbed. She'd get the police now. Surely they'd search the whole place. Surely they'd look down here and find them. And then she said, No, I haven't reported it yet. I suppose I should, but I don't like the idea. On your account, you know. No, I, I'm going to call up Paul at the shop. There's just a chance that he took the money and the watch with him when he, when he left this morning. You come out then, Dave. There was a pause while she broke the connection. Then he heard her dial his shop number and wait while they were ringing. Of course, no one answered. In terrible silence, he screamed, I'm right here under your feet. Don't waste time. For heaven's sakes, come down here. Finally, she hung up, and he heard her going up the stairs again, and he whimpered disappointedly. One half hour and nine scant minutes more left. 
and they ticked away with the prodigality of tropical raindrops on a corrugated tin roof. He kept straining and pulling away from the pipe that held him fast and then falling back exhausted to rest a while, to struggle and to strain some more. How could ropes hold that unyieldingly? Each time he felt back weaker, less able to contend with them than the time before. For he wasn't little strands of hemp. He was layers of thin skin that broke one by one and gave forth burning pain and finally blood. The doorbell rang out sharply. The man had come. Stapp's chest started rising and falling with renewed hope. Four ears instead of two to hear whatever slight sound he might manage to make. And he must, he must find a way of making one. Oh, thank God for this admirer, or whatever he was. Thank God for their rendezvous. She came quickly down the stairs a second time, and her footfalls hurried down the hall. The front door opened. Hello, Dave, he heard her say. And a man's voice asked, Did it turn up yet? No, and I've looked high and low. I tried to get Paul after I spoke to you, but he was out to lunch. Come in the kitchen. I'll make you a cup of coffee. Her quick, brittle step went first, and his heavier, slower one followed. There was the sound of a couple of chairs being drawn out, and the man's footfalls died out entirely. Hers continued busily back and forth for a while on a short orbit between stove and table. What were they going to do? Sit there for the next half hour? Couldn't he make them hear him in some way? He tried clearing his throat, coughing. It hurt furiously, and the gag muffled even the cough to a blurred, purring sort of sound. Twenty-six to three, only minutes left now. Minutes, not even a full half hour anymore. And then he heard her say, Don't you think we ought to tell Paul uh, about us? What kind of a guy is he? Well, Paul's not narrow-minded. He's very fair and broad. Well, you have nothing to be afraid of in Paul's account, Dave. Didn't you... Didn't you ever tell him about me at all? You mean the beginning? Oh, I told him you'd been in one or two scrapes, but like a little fool, I let him think I'd lost track of you and didn't know where you were anymore. Why, why, that was her brother she'd said that about. The man sitting up there with her confirmed it right as the thought burst in his mind. I know it's tough on you, sis. You're happily married and all that. I, I got no right to come around and gum things up for you. No one's proud of a jailbird and escaped convict for a brother. Yeah, I suppose I'll have to go back and finish it out, but seven years, old friend. Seven years out of a man's life. David, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. But before you decide anything, let's go downtown and talk it over with Paul and hear what he says. One chair jarred back, and then the other. He could hear dishes clatter, as though they'd all been lumped together in one stack. But were they going to leave again? Were they going to leave him behind here, alone, with only minutes to spare? Their footsteps went down the hall. Stay with me, Stapp wailed. Stay! Panic-stricken, Stapp did the only thing he could think of. Struck the back of his head violently against the thick pipe he was attached to. A, A sheet of blue flame darted before his eyes. The pain was so excruciating, he knew he couldn't repeat the attempt. But they must have heard something. Some dull thud or reverberation must have carried up along the pipe. 
He heard her stop short for a minute and say, What was that? The man said he hadn't heard anything. And she took his word for it. And there was the sound of the front door opening. She passed through it. The man passed through it. It closed. They were gone. He was left alone with his self-fashioned doom a second time. And the first seemed a paradise in retrospect compared to this. For then he had a full hour to spare. He'd been rich in time. And now he only had 15 minutes, one miserly quarter hour. Well, there wasn't any use struggling anymore. He couldn't anyway, even if he wanted to. Flames seemed to be licking lazily around his wrists and ankles. He'd found a sort of palliative now, the only way there was left. He'd keep his eyes down and pretend the hands were moving slower than they were. It was better than watching them constantly. It blunted a little of the terror at least. The ticking he couldn't hide from. Of course, every once in a while, when he couldn't resist looking up and verifying his own calculations, there'd be a renewed burst of anguish. But in between times, it made it more bearable to say, it's only gained a half minute since the last time I looked. Then... Suddenly, the outside world intruded again. The doorbell rang out. He took no hope from the summons at first. Maybe it was some peddler. Came again. Whoever was ringing was truculently impatient at being kept waiting. A third ring was given the bell, this time a veritable blast that kept on for nearly half a minute. And then as the peal finally stopped, a voice called out forcefully, Anybody home in there? Gas company? And suddenly, Stapp was quivering all over. This was the one call, the one incident in all the day's domestic routine from earliest morning until latest night that could possibly have brought anyone down into the basement. The meter was up there in the wall, staring him in the face. And her brother had had to take her out of the house at just this particular time. There was no one to let the man in. The gas inspector gave the bell one more try, as if venting his disappointment of being balked rather than in any expectation of being admitted at this late time in the proceedings. He gave it innumerable short jabs, like a telegraph key, and then he called out disgustedly, evidently for the benefit of some unseen assistant waiting in a truck out at the curb. They're never in when you want them to be. There was a single quick tread in the cement, away from the house. died a little. His arms and legs got cold up to the elbows and knees. His heart seemed to beat slower, and he had trouble getting a full breath. Saliva escaped and ran down his chin, and his head drooped forward and lay in his chest for a while, inert. The clock ticked on. He noticed that his mind was starting to wander. Suddenly, the outer world returned again. This time it was the phone. It must be Fran and her brother trying to find out if he'd come back here in their absence. They'd found the shop closed, must have waited outside it for a while, and when he still didn't come, they didn't know what to make of it. When no one answered, that would tell him surely that something was wrong. Wouldn't they come back now to find out what had happened to him? But how could they dream he was in the basement the whole time? Why should they think he was here in the house if he didn't answer the phone? Fran would become real worried. Maybe they'd go to the police. But that would be hours from now. What good would that do? They'd look everywhere but here for him. When a man is reported missing, the last place they'd look for him would be in his own home. 
It stopped ringing finally, and silence came rolling back in its wake. Nine minutes to three. Oh, what a lovely number was nine. Let it be nine forever, not eight or seven, nine for all eternity. Make time stand still. But no, it was already eight. Oh, what a precious number was eight, so rounded, so symmetrical. Let it be eight forever. A woman's voice called out in sharp reprimand somewhere outside in the open. Bobby, be careful what you're doing. You'll break that window. She was some distance away, but the ringing dictatorial tones carried clearly. And suddenly, Stapp saw the blurred shape of a ball strike the basement transom. A child came close up against the transom to get its ball back. If it would only turn its head over this way, it could look right in. It could see him. The glass wasn't too smeary for that. Stapp started to weave his head violently from side to side, hoping the flurry of motion would attract it and catch its eye. Suddenly, it had turned its head and was looking directly in through the transom. And then it saw him, and it yelled, Mommy, look! An adult hand suddenly darted downward from the upper right-hand corner of the transom, caught the child's wrist, bore its arm upward out of sight. But it pointed and said, Mommy, funny man tied up. Look! The adult voice, reasonable, logical, dispassionate, answered, Why, that wouldn't look nice. Mommy can't peer into other people's houses like you can. The child's head disappeared above the transom. Its body was pivoted around away from him. He could see the hollows at the back of its knees for an instant longer. And then its outline on the glass blurred in withdrawal. It was gone. Only the little clear spot it had scoured remained to mock him in his crucifixion. He rolled his head away from the window, back toward the clock finally. To his horror, it stood at three to three. He couldn't feel anymore terror or hope or anything else. A sort of numbness set in with a core of gleaming awareness remaining that was in his mind. He was making animal noises deep in his throat as the minute hand slowly blended with the notch of twelve. Guttural sounds like a dog worrying about a bone, though the gag prevented the sounds from emerging in full volume. He puckered the flesh around his eyes apprehensively, creasing them into slits as though the closing of his eyes could ward off, lessen the terrific force of what was to come. The hand on the dial gradually became upright. It was three o'clock, but he didn't know it. He was shaking all over from head to foot, not with fear, but with laughter. And then everything went black. What's the matter with him, officer? What's the matter with him? It was Fran, and she was standing over him crying. The policeman was untying the hard, knotted ropes and taking the gag out of his mouth. The officer felt his pulse, and then he said, Well, he must have passed out, ma'am. But I think he'll be all right. We better get him to a hospital, though. The clock said five past seven. The cop got up, went over to the box, and kicked it idly with his foot. It shifted lightly along the wall a little and took the clock with it. And he asked, What's in this box? And Stapp's wife looked at it and answered, Nothing. Well, it used to have some kind of fertilizer in it, but only this morning I took it out and emptied it in the flowers I've been trying to raise in the back of the house. It's just an empty box. 
you can turn up the lights now. You can look around you. Nobody is there, really. Everything is all right, isn't it? Step over here, Nelson Olmstead, and tell us about next week's story. Next week's story on Sleep No More is about a woman in a large, empty house which the wind buffets and shakes. And in that house, the woman finds a pinpoint of light where there should be no light. The story is The Storm by McKnight Melmar. You'll be listening to Sleep No More, an NBC Radio Network production directed by Kenneth McGregor. Mr. Armstead's albums are recorded exclusively for Vanguard Records. Until next week, when Nelson Armstead will again be here in person, this is Ben Grauer bidding you good night. Sleep No More is a horror program, but with a bit of a twist. It's narrated by Nelson Almstead, spelled like Olmstead, so it can be mispronounced. In Sleep No More, Almstead narrated his own adaptations of terror tales and science fantasy stories. Ben Grauer was the program's announcer. There is no cast of actors. Almstead plays all of the parts. In order for this to work, Almstead has to be very engaging, and luckily he is. Almstead was such a good teller of tales that he was NBC's resident storyteller, a position he held for over a decade, beginning with The World's Greatest Short Stories and Dramas by Almstead. Each episode of Sleep No More is a half hour, but each episode consists of two 15-minute unrelated stories. So, how did Almstead get his start narrating stories? When he wanted to break into the field in the 1930s, he noted that dramatic shows were expensive and there were no budgets available but that the cheapest dramas for radio I could think of was the good literature read aloud. And he made quite a career of it. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.